And everybody said amen. Wow, thank you so much for leading us in worship today. Well, as we continue our conversation uh, that we began last Sunday morning, you know that our theme for uh, the sermons that I'm sharing with you during Missions Month is sharing the faith. And so last Sunday we began with the mandate and we will make our way through these next two Sunday mornings. But our theme for missions at First Baptist Arlington is live sent. And you know that the curriculum that you're studying on Sunday morning in your, in your Bible studies is built around this idea of what it means to live sent. And you know that every year during uh, November, we remind ourselves of our commitment to the World Mission Offering and uh, as we give to it all year long. And I wanna thank you for your generosity there. Also wanna remind you though, the core support financially for all of our mission efforts is really through our budget. And so we wanna continue to be faithful in our giving to the budget. You know, as we've been through this pandemic these last 20 months or so, however long it's been, it has been really challenging. Uh, this, this week, uh, weekend, actually beginning this week, starting today, Texas Baptists are gathering in Galveston and will be there for the next couple of days. And uh, I'm going to be leading a, a uh, conversation with a group of pastors there in Galveston about life in the post-pandemic church. And first of all, I don't know that we're post-pandemic yet, are we? <clears throat> and I will tell you, as I shared with the folks who asked me to lead this seminar, I said it, my presentation will be really short because I'm going to begin by saying I have absolutely no idea how to lead during this post-pandemic era. It is very challenging. There are so many questions that still remain. So I wanna thank you for being faithful during this season. Uh, that we've experienced across our world. And for us as a church, trying to navigate through it all, you have been um, faithful. You've contain, you continue to be invested. And just wanna remind you that we, we need that. You know, November and December, those two months in particular, when it comes to our giving, those are the two months that really set the stage for a whole year's worth of ministry investment. So I wanna encourage you to be faithful in your giving to the budget in November and December, because that's really how we fuel everything that the Lord has called us to do. And it sets the tone for us for the rest of the year. And as we continue to, to figure out how to live in this hybrid environment, you know, where we have a lot of people online, we have more and more folks joining us online and we're grateful for that. We have new folks visiting us in person and, and folks that are uh, making their way back in person. It's been a very interesting season. So thank you for who you've been and who we're becoming as we navigate through this time. With all that said, you may remember last Sunday morning in terms of this conversation, we began by asking the question, by what authority? And I shared with you last Sunday morning that the Lord has given us a mandate. Jesus himself is the one who's told us to go and make disciples of all the nations. Well, the question for us this morning is, well then what is our message? We've been given this mandate. So today the, the title of the sermon is Missions, The Message. And I, I want you to look with me, if you don't mind, in the book of Acts. Just one, one verse really will serve us this morning in the book of Acts. And it's, it's contextualized by an experience that Peter and John have had and are continuing to have. But in this conversation that they're having with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, very early in the Christian journey, they pause and make this very powerful statement that sums up, if you will, 
the message that we have as Christians. So look with me at Acts 4, verse 12, where Peter and John say this back to these Jewish leaders. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. I want to begin this morning with a theological phrase that theologians have coined to help us understand one of the challenges that Christians face in the broader world. And that phrase is the scandal of particularity. Theologians coined that phrase years ago. And in essence, that phrase embodies one of the challenges we face as Christians as we find ourselves in a pluralistic, multi-religious world. The scandal of particularity. So let me tell you where that phrase comes from. It actually comes from the teachings of Jesus and the early followers of Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 14, verse six? Do you remember? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then what? And no one comes to the Father except what? Through me. That is a very particular statement. What does that rule out in terms of options to find your way to God? All other options. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Lord, if it's your will, could you remove this cup from me? Now, as, as much as I know Jesus was a human being, I think when you study that theologically, Jesus wasn't necessarily asking the Lord to remove the crucifixion experience, per se. What Jesus was asking for was, do I have to take on the sins of the world? Do I have to be separated from you? Is, is this the only way? And remember he prays three times, not my will but yours. And then Jesus of course goes and dies on the cross. Jesus himself also told us in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in Matthew seven, he said, you know, there's a, there's a wide gate, there's a broad road that leads to what? Destruction, and he says many people will find that, right? But then he also said, there's this small gate and this narrow road that leads to life, and only a few will find that. And then we come into this story. In Acts three, Peter and John are going up to the temple. This is after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. And Peter and John are on their way to the temple, and they're, they're still praying at the temple. They're, they're Jewish men. And so they're there in Jerusalem, so they're, they're not going to worship at the temple. They're not offering sacrifices any longer, but they're going there to pray. And they encounter this lame beggar by the gate called Beautiful. Y'all remember this story? And they, this beggar cries out for help, and he's looking for alms. He's looking for, for folks who will, who will maybe give him just a little bit of money to sustain him for a day. And Peter finally says, look at me. And he says, we don't have any money to give you, but in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the Bible says the man just rose up and walked. And so there's this incredible experience. He was someone that everybody knew 
And so the word begins to spread that guys like Peter and John are performing these miracles. So the Jewish leaders bring them in and they say, what are y'all doing? You're causing a stir. You're healing lame people. You're upsetting our system. And so I love how uh, Peter and John try to answer these, these leaders. They say, we, we all know about this, he says. But the, but the thing is, he says, look, if, if, if Peter and John say, look, if you're trying to figure out what's happened, here, look, at, look back at verse 10 of Acts chapter four. He says, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God raised him from the dead. This man's been raised. And then it's almost like Peter says, and while I'm at it, here's what you need to know. Salvation is found nowhere else. He quotes Psalm 118 and then he points them to Jesus. So theologians refer to this kind of thinking and expression as particularity. It's a very particular path to salvation. It rules out any other way. And so this morning I would submit to you the reminder that as Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ offers the only path to eternal salvation that there is. He is the only way. There is no other way. There are no other paths. He is the one who offers abundant, meaningful, and eternal life. So theologians refer, that, refer to that as a scandal. Now why do they call it scandal? Well, it's because it's based on a Greek word, scandalon. We get our English word from it. You know, in, it, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says this teaching about Jesus, he says to the Greeks, it's moriah is the Greek word. We get our word moron. It means empty-headed, foolish. He says to the Greeks, it's, it's moriah, it's, it's foolish. But to the Jew, he says, it's scandalon. The word scandalon means to lay a trap and trip somebody up. It's a stumbling block. And he says it's a stumbling block to the Jew. So theologians say to the rest of our world, this teaching, this idea, this, this message is a stumbling block of particularity. Does that make sense? So last Sunday, we ask the question, by what authority? Well, the authority is Jesus. This Sunday, well, what's the message? Well, the message is a very particular one. Leslie Newbegin, this incredible missionary, written so many uh, works on missiology. He was in India, and he was meeting with a Hindu priest scholar about the Bible. And this priest responded to Newbegin with these words. I think I have the quote for you on the screen. This Hindu priest says to this missionary, he says, I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It is not a book of religion. And anyway, we have plenty of books of religion in India. We don't need any more. I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history, the history of the whole of creation and the history of the human race. And therefore, a unique interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history. That is unique. There is nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside it. 
Now that's a Hindu scholar's assessment after reading the Bible. I've read a lot of religious books, he said, but your Bible is different than any other religious book because it paints a universal story of reality. It must either be true or not. Wow, he understood the scandal of particularity and he's not even a Christian. So here's what I would tell you this morning, just as a reminder. I believe you all, we all already know this, but I just wanna make sure that we know. It's kinda like when I was in chapel one day and Shadrach Meshach Lockridge was preaching and his sermon was, he is worthy. And he read that text from the book of Jude about the worthiness of Christ and he took off his glasses and he said, I know you already know this, but for fear there's one of you who doesn't know he's worthy, let me tell you about him. Well, for fear that you don't know the message, I just wanna make sure we know it today, okay? Because the Bible tells a story the Bible is not just a book of religion. The Bible actually tells a story. In fact, it's the story. It's the big story. It's the meta-narrative. It's the grand narrative of all of reality. And it is either it is true or it is not. Those are really the only two options. It's either the word of God or it's just the reflections of a group of Jewish authors. Those are really your two options. I've staked my life on it being the truth. And I believe it's the word of God. And contained in the story is a message. And it is a message that we've been given as the people of God. So let me just summarize the message for you this morning. I, I don't have time to do it comprehensively, so I'm going to take it pretty quickly so stay with me. So here's the message as I see it that's contained in the Bible. First, the God of the Bible is the God of creation. Everything exists because of him. All of creation is an expression of the will of God. In fact, it is so close to God that he spoke it with his breath into existence. That's how intimate it is. It only exists because he said it would be so. God has created all human beings in his image. Out of all of creation, God has singled us out as humans. And he's put something inside of every single human being in the entire world that gives us dignity and worth and value. And that is his image. That means human beings are the crowning achievement of his creative activity. God's desire is for humankind to bear his image and reflect his glory in his world. God has given us the unique responsibility of that very thing, bearing his image and reflecting his glory. His glory is, is difficult for us to comprehend. If you go back and read the story in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses said, show me your glory. And the Bible tells the story of God passing by Moses and God's love and his faithfulness and his mercy was all on display. All of that is the glory of God and we're supposed to reflect it. Isaiah 43 verse seven, my people who, I'm called, who I've called by my name are to reflect my glory, God says. However, human beings have sinned against God. All human beings have sinned against God. Every culture struggles with sin and brokenness. You can go anywhere in the world and you'll find sin 
wherever human beings live. Every village, every hamlet, every community, every family, every neighborhood, every city, every state, every nation, everywhere in the world where human beings live, you'll discover sin because human beings have sinned against God. That story is told very specifically in the Bible. In Genesis 3, human beings rebelled against God and unleashed this evil on our world. And we all have received this sinful nature. And every one of us stands guilty before the Lord. And sin has resulted in humanity's inability to fulfill God's purpose. So because you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner, I can't fulfill the very reason for which I've been created. So human beings, because of our sinfulness, we no longer can fulfill God's purpose. What does the Bible say in Romans 3, verse 23? We've been designed by God to bear his image, to reflect his glory. What does the Bible say in Romans 3, verse 23? For everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The very reason you've been created, you fall short of it because you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. What was God's response to mankind's rebellion? Praise his name, redemption. God's response was to redeem, to rescue, to restore the brokenness of humanity. And so we can take this message anywhere in the world, doesn't matter where it is. You can stand in the most isolated village on planet Earth, or you can stand in the most densely populated urban area on planet Earth, and you can share a message of good news that God's answer to the sinfulness that everybody sees on display is his offer of redemption. In fact, Genesis page three, God said to the serpent, the evil one, you've been cursed. And he said, one day the seed of this woman will crush your head. And so we read the Bible waiting, watching the seed of the woman. What an interesting phrase written in ancient tongue. We all know the seed belongs to the man, not the woman. <laughs> but the anxious waiting for the, for the redemption of humanity hinges on the seed of the woman. Is it any shock to you that one day in human history, God answered the cry of humanity and he spoke to a young girl, a young lady in Nazareth and said, I have chosen you, Mary, you, the hope of all the world, Jew and Gentile, will arise in you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the seed of the woman will then bear fruit and give birth. And the answer for redemption has arrived. So God's voice is most fully represented in the person of Jesus Christ, his son. God spoke this world into existence. In the beginning, God created everything that the Bible tells us in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, that the Word became flesh. God spoke through His Son. The writer of Hebrews says that's where we find the fullest expression of who God is, is in His Son. So Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And guess what? God's glory emanates from His person. John tells us in John 1, 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and we beheld his glory. Because he most fully 
demonstrated to us how to bear the image of God and reflect the glory of God on this earth. Jesus Christ stands unparalleled in all of human history. No one else even comes close. No one. Only Jesus has lived the perfect sinless life. Jesus came as a redeemer. And so God's offer of redemption is a restoration of glory, his glory in human beings. Hallelujah. That means you and I have a message for the ages. That's why these men here in Acts 4 are standing there looking at the leaders of their, of their religious expression. These are the Jewish leaders. These are the learned men who are asking them, what are you doing? And these men said, we want you to know we are standing here today representing Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, and God raised him from the dead. Hallelujah. And I love what the text says in Acts 4, verse 13. It says this, they saw the courage of Peter and John. They realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. Would to God, that's what they say about all of us. We may not impress you with our scholarship and our erudition, but we want to impress you with the fact that we know Jesus and we've lived in his presence and we've embraced his message. And what we are now going to proclaim to our world in Arlington and all across the world is there is no other name by which men can be saved. Only Jesus. So this morning, if you don't know what our message is, come on now, this is our message. This drives everything. And without this, there is no reason to be engaged in mission. We love people and we wanna help people. We wanna make sure they have clean water. We wanna make sure they have social justice. We wanna make sure they have an opportunity to live. All those are expressions of the gospel. But what drives us to all of those beliefs is this central core message that we believe Jesus offers restoration, redemption, and hope for mankind. Amen. And that's the heart of the message of the story in the Bible. And it's at the root of our effort in mission at First Baptist Arlington. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, this morning we thank you. We thank you for this message, a message of hope and salvation. We realize that in some quarters is scandalous. It's very particular. And yet it's not our message, it's yours. And it now has become ours because you've given it to us. And so Lord, may we be faithful in living believing, embracing, and proclaiming this message. May it be so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.